Anyway, he says, it's just a matter of study and it sort of leaks out of you. And he always said, if when pressed about inspiration questions, he'd said, he tries to imagine a place that's not here, like in uh, Tolkien's world or C.S. Lewis or some bizarre world that doesn't exist. And he tries to imagine what would be good jewelry for them. And then he tries to sell it here. And and I mean, this is a guy that constantly read books. He'd be on two books a week, every week, all year long. Mm -hmm. And he loved those fantasy books and he loved sagas. Dadan talking to Jeff Fero about the life, the work, and the legacy of the jewelry designer, Alex Shepkus. Hi, Jeff. It's so great to meet you here on Zoom. You too. Thanks for thinking of us. No, it's a great pleasure. I'm so interested in the story of um, Alex Sepkus. Do I pronounce it right? Yeah, Lithuanians pronounce Shepkus with a SH sound, but Shepkus. Oh. But everyone in America calls it Sepkus. Sepkus, <clears throat> okay. Yeah, and I, I read also that he is from, from originally from Lithuania. I didn't know that. But um, can you tell me the story about this whole, the East design and, and how he got to uh, New York? Okay, it's it's fairly interesting story. Um, he and I started our careers at the same time. I, of course, in the U.S., I was 14 and he was 14 and he had uh, very interesting parents in Countess, Lithuania, and they uh, one was a chemist, his mother, and his father was an architect. So he learned drafting at a very early age and was very, very talented, both in drafting, drawing, and generally the arts. And his aunts gave him, because they were all widowed from the World War II, they all gave him uh, private lessons in Latin, German, French. Um, of course, he spoke Russian, Polish, and Lithuanian. Wow. By the time I met him, he spoke seven languages and read in all of them. Even old German, he was an expert in. Um, anyway, he was a very bright guy. And uh, one of the stories he told me that highlights that is when he was 14, Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd was coming to perform in Warsaw, Poland, not in the old Soviet area, but Warsaw. And they were going to broadcast the live concert around the area. And Countess is right over the border from Poland. So he set up a large antenna and recorded it reel to reel. And this took a, this took a lot of forethought. And then each copy of the reel to reel tape sold for three times his father's monthly salary. And he sold them nonstop for years because Amazing. it was a very valuable bootleg. Yeah. So that's how bright he was. He could see things in the future. He could see what he wanted to accomplish. And even at that age, he decided he wanted to come to America because he didn't like what he witnessed around his family and his home and Lithuania. And, you know, even his name, the name Sepkus, S-E-P-K-U-S, was uh, transferred by the Soviets into Latin and then into Russian. So it was Shiopkus, C-H-A-I-O-P-K-O-U-S. So there was no more ethnic. uh, You weren't Latvian, you weren't Ukrainian, you weren't Lithuanian and so on. So he hated that. So he came up with a very sharp plan in his 30s to uh, take trips to East Germany. Things were getting a little softer, of course, at that time in 1988. And he managed to uh, get friendly with the border guards that would let him go to the West Germany and come back. He'd bring them jeans. And, you know, at that time, Mm -hmm. jeans were very valuable. 
And he got very friendly with him so he could take his two suitcases with him on the last day. And then he went and asked for political asylum in West Germany. And that's how he got out. My goodness. Um, so he was really, I mean, he was a genius to think of how to, to plan that, to know how he would be able to get out. Absolutely. He would have made a, I always say, he would have made a great cult leader. Thank God he wasn't evil. <laughs> he, he used to say to me, he said, Jeff, when I need something, I conjure it up in my mind and it appears and you appeared to me when I needed you. And here you are. I'm like, well, that's kind of a compliment, I guess. Amazing. Yeah. So you so, say he was in his 30s then when he did that. Yeah, he was about 32 when he came here. And um, he, you know, going back to his university, he went to university to do um a lot of drawings and he thought he'd be a uh, do etchings for the rest of his life because he liked the microscopic carving and needlework and everything but what happened while he was there he met a an engraver that actually in, inlaid metal in guns so fancy guns and he'd lay, inlay gold into steel so he taught alex how to do it with a microscope and how to inlay metal into stone so alex would make these small sculptures after basically after he got out of college and these small sculptures he would sell to people or trade or barter and then usually there were a guy buying this little gemstone with some pieces of gold in it and give it to his wife and his wife says it's so beautiful i want to wear it as a brooch so alex a lot of times these pieces were returned to him can you please make it so she can wear it either with a bail for a pendant or for a brooch and uh he sort of got backed into jewelry that way. So he started learning more about making bands. And you have to remember at this time, metal was so scarce. The rings I own of his right now from that time are paper thin and they're all hand engraved. And they're all one-offs. Wow. So, so he already he, started then uh, with the jewelry. Yes. Yeah, so let's see if I have one here. No, I, I don't have it, but I wanted to show you how thin it was. It's just basically paper thin. Um, he started with the jewelry, didn't think he'd stay with it. He just thought it was interesting. But the amount of attention he got for it, it just kept pushing him. So fast forward, he comes here in 88. He gets, um, first job he can get is in a uh, charm factory in Brooklyn. And he was working for these traditional Hasidic guys. And they asked him if he could carve a little dog, a greyhound dog. He carved it perfectly, about two centimeters in size, complete with veins in the legs and whiskers. And I wish I could find where those carvings are because those are his first carvings in the country. Um, and he discovered that you could carve in wax, cast and make multiples of stuff because everything to this point was a one-off piece that he would make, you know, one of a kind, a spoken piece. And... So he then went from there to a better shop that did Bulgari's work here on 48th Street. And he learned from the Polish guys that were there. Of course, he spoke Polish. He learned to do the grill work, the undercarriage, the classic jewelry techniques of, you know, um, azuring a piece with diamonds, putting a grill work, making a clasp with a safety, all the high end stuff he learned. And also he added his skill of carving to that. And he suddenly had an idea for his own line. So I met him while I worked for a jeweler named Julius Cohen. I'd been there 13 years and I was in their bench 
and I also was on the road selling. So I was back and forth between the shop, the customer, and on the road with the, the owner. And uh, so I would be working between uh, craftsmen down here, whether they're engravers or setters or whomever we needed outside our own shop, enamelists. And so someone told me about Alex. So I invited him up and he could repair anything. I never saw anything like him. That he could repair anything and he'd hand make things. He fixed invisible set ruby bracelet from Van Cleef's he'd never seen before. Just figured it out on his own. Um, so I used to go to his shop and sit next to him in 90, yeah, 90 or 91. And I was just mesmerized by his ability. But then one day he says, you want to see my work? And he took out the pieces he had started. He had like 14 pieces he had started since he arrived in this country. And they were all so tiny. The biggest stone was like three millimeters. Bands were about three millimeters, four millimeters wide. And I said, Alex, this stuff is so beautiful. Why are you making it so tiny? And he says, I don't have any money for gold. I don't have any money for stones. Now, I've been a jeweler for almost 20 years at this point. And I'm, yeah, 20 years. I was 34. And I said, well, I have kind of an inactive bench at home. You know, I pretend I'm a jeweler, but I'm more of a salesman now. So I went home and I gathered up all my diamonds, rubies, sapphires, uh, gold, platinum, and I gave him a check for $10,000. I said, make this stuff. I'm sure I could sell it. And he, wow. was, he was like, you really believe in me? I'm like, sure. I said, this stuff is amazing. So we started out loosely like that in, um, I think it was October of 1991. And he made about 29 pieces by December, get this, December 16th. He delivered them to me, and there's not much you can do with pieces December 16th. So I took them to, there was a store in the Plaza Hotel, you know, right in the middle of Manhattan, right at 57th Street, the old plaza. There was a store in there called Maurice. And Maurice was a consignment shop because they had such a fine address. And, you know, they'd take, you had nice things, they'd take it from you. So I parked the stuff there on December 16th, went away at Christmas, had a holiday, came back on January 6th. Went in there and she said, I sold everything. Can you do it again? Can you and, imagine? Yeah, wow. so I got, I got a check for $20,000, $30,000. I went to Alex. I go, you see how well it's going? I, showed, I have the check on the wall here. And I um, told him that January, I said, January 92, I said, you know what I think after 14 years, I want to quit my job and do this full time with you. And he was freaked out. Because I was leaving, you know, a very nice place, but the owner was now 81, 82, and things were getting difficult, and it was kind of a sad scene. And uh, Julius, I don't know if you know of him, but he's quite famous in this this country for his fine jewelry. He was Harry Winston's greatest salesman, and he carried the Hope Diamond around in the 50s and used to throw it at people and say it's bad luck. So he, has quite, he himself has quite a storied past. You know, Corey Knorr, Cullinan 1, Cullinan 2, he sold great chrysanthemum brioletti sold he sold huge things for winston in the 50s then he went on to his own in 56 and i met him in 80 so that's a little bit of the background yeah and then when i met alex i said it's you know i think it's time to take a chance the only problem is i started in january 92 which was the deepest recession this country's seen and here i am running around with no income trying to sell jewelry and everyone's like not now not now not now we didn't really sell anything substantial until August of 92. And I was in debt. And my house was in foreclosure and I had $90 left. And it was, you know, I took the meter off my house. and But they didn't want my house because we're in such a deep recession. Houses weren't yeah. selling. 
So that's that's paints the picture for you. And Alex yeah. took it, Alex took it as a funny thing because he said, "I'm making you an honorary immigrant because you have less money than I had when I came here. I had 200 bucks. You have 90 bucks left." And we sat and drank a bottle of tequila together and just laughed about it. And it kind of relaxed me because it was like, you know, yeah. how if this guy can laugh at it, he's made it this. I mean, let's just give it a shot. But so, that that shows you also where he came from. You know, it's it must have been that he he had nothing when he left, so he had nothing to lose, really. Yeah, he had, and he he just he just was reinforcing. If you have faith, just keep with it. Mm-hmm. And even my father, who was very conservative, I called him up. You know, really dejected, and said, you know. I think I'm going to have to go out and get a job. And he actually, for all his conservative, not wanting to take a risk ever, not wanting to buy a stock, he yelled at me and says, you've taken it out nine months and now you want to stop? He said, are you out of your mind? He says, keep going, keep going. He says, they're not going to take your house yet. You can sell it before they take it from you. So don't worry, just keep talking to the foreclosure lady. Um, So... It, it was a big boost from both my father and Alex. And I just, so I got real focused and I went into a really fine jeweler in Greenwich, Connecticut called Bedridge. And they've been there a long time, 150 years or so. And I sat with them and they loved it. And when they kept me there for six hours and they wrote a $160,000 order, I finally announced to them, I have no money. I have no meter on my house currently. And I need you to prepay me or I can't make this jewelry. Well, they basically were kind of laughing at me. And they said, why would you dare ask that? I said, because I am desperate and I've put everything in my soul into this. And if you don't want to play, you don't have to play. But I'm just telling you the truth. And they were so shocked. They wrote me a check in silence and said, you know, Mm -hmm. just don't ever ask for this again. And then Mm -hmm. that taught me that with the clarity of that, that kind of clarity of desperation that for the next five years, I asked that of everybody we met. Even when we had money, really? I said, I'm sorry, we can't afford to make your jewelry. And that springboarded us, you know, from my little $10,000 to start the company, that springboarded us right up into the millions where we would just never have to go to the bank for 10 years. Just because yeah. I said, you want you want this jewelry that bad? You have to prepay me. Just it shows you, yeah, it just shows you if you do it um, and, and people are willing to pay then. Yeah. And some people said, no, don't think they yeah. didn't. But at the same time, those same people that said no came back, you know, three years later and said, "Okay, now we're ready." Yeah. And uh, and we've we've had very good clients from the beginning, thirty three years now. And every time we have a troublesome client, we shut them off and say, "You can't buy from us anymore because we don't we don't get paid that way. We don't wait six months for our money." And they come crawling back, and we put them on prepay, and mm-hmm. it's kept us from ever getting in. Deep. And that's why we never sold to Neiman Marcus, because I told him, I read him the riot act. I said, I will not play this game that you did with Paul Morelli. You almost destroyed him. Three million dollars in back receivables. And then you say you just want to return the jewelry to him. Mm. I said, I'm not going to do that. You pay us as we go. Well, we don't do that. I said, well, see you. We can we'll mm. have a nice business without Neiman Marcus. And we have. And that's uh, amazing. we've been, oh, we've been in Bergdorf. Bergdorf's been a fine partner for years. But Neiman's, even though they're the same company, they've never. You could never really play well with them. It's just it's sad to say. But now uh, this shows just this confidence that you had in in yourself also as a businessman and or as a salesman. And then also in Alex, you know, in his work. 
Yeah, actually, because I mean, I felt like I had enough perspective on what good jewelry was that there was nothing mm -hmm. like it out there. There are very few really original people. They're all derivatives of each other. And he stood alone so much so that every time we do a major trade show like Vegas, other jewelers would come to us and buy Alex's work for their mm -hmm. wives and for themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was, we call it jeweler's jewelry. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be appreciated. And yet you'd have some store owners, the flashier the place, like give, I'll give you examples like Rodale Drive, Dallas, Okraton, any place that's really flashy, never bought our jewelry because it was too esoteric. Mm -hmm. And I just stare at them like, fine, it's not for your clients. I understand it's not for the Kardashians. But and the, the irony is that when you see movie stars on red carpet, you see them in big flashy pieces and estate pieces and big drippy pieces. But in private, they all wear our jewelry. Amazing. You know, many, yeah. many clients that, you know, they wear the flashy stuff to red carpet, but they wear our stuff every mm -hmm. single day. And it's, it's fun to know that. It doesn't yeah. help you with marketing, but it's yeah. fun. <laughs> But um, Jeff, this but I when I saw it as well, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen that type of design. And it's what was the inspiration? What uh, what exactly? Because it's very um, sort of uh, a signature of of his designs. You you can see, you can spot it as okay. These designs are come from the same place. You know. Almost. Yeah. So what is the inspiration do you think he had to do it that way? Well, he occasionally has gotten the comment over the years that his work reminds a lot of people of Klimt. Um, and he said, yes. well, that's that's accidental, he says, because he did study a lot of artists from that period. Plus, there's a lot of jewelers, German jewelers, Austrian jewelers that did a lot of Round circles. I forget the name of the one guy that he loved. There's this couple of them. But anyway, he says it's just a matter of study and it sort of leaks out of you. And he always said, if when pressed about inspiration questions, he'd said he tries to imagine a place that's not here, like in uh, Tolkien's world or C.S. Lewis or some bizarre world that doesn't exist. And he tries to imagine what would be good jewelry for them. And then he tries to sell wow. it here. Yeah, and, he, and he, I mean, this is a guy that constantly read books. He'd be on two books a week, every week, all year long. Mm -hmm. And he loved those fantasy books and he loved sagas. And, you know, mm -hmm. I used to go to Iceland fishing and I'd bring him back books and he sometimes would affect his work. But his his nature of being humble is he'd say the truth is, he says, people don't want to hear it, but I'm simply a vessel. I sit down. I think today I'm going to make a ring. And, you know, two days later, I have a pair of earrings sitting in front of me. And it wasn't my choice. I'm just a vessel that the universe feeds this jewelry through. It comes out my fingertips. And he goes, eh, I'm just lucky to be the vessel because I get paid to do this. Wow. This is not like it's not like there's any original thought, he would say. Mm. And, you know, look at these forms. These forms were done by the Egyptians, the Etruscans. Some of his forms look like they were from directly from Angar Wat. And he's like, oh, that was an accident. He's just, <laughs> But he says, it's just, you know, he, the human nature is that we're attracted to certain forms. Yes. He really was attracted to organic forms. So he'd study lichen on the side of a rock. He'd study bark. He'd study the underside of a mushroom. So, you know, to try to get as close to nature as he could, that was the challenge in some of his textures. 
But what's often missed by people is that if you sanded all the detail off of his rings or a form of a bracelet, the underlying form itself has a lot of thought into it. And then the ornamentation's added to it. And people forget about the underlying form is so important. Mm -hmm. And he was also a very good engineer. The techniques he came up with for the bracelet ladder work and the clasps and the necklace forms and the efficiency of jewelers not as talented as him to put it together. He would think all the way through their hands. Like, how easy can I make this for my shop to put together without me having to revisit the piece? And the funny thing is, most new pieces, he'd make one or two. Like, let's say a bracelet. He'd make one or two of the bracelet. Then he'd show the shop, turn it over to them. Well, often, and this happened more than once, we'd go to a trade show, which he hated because he didn't like talking about his work. He's sitting there looking at the jewelry, and he'd pick up a bracelet, and he's like, what the hell's going on here, Jeff? I'm like, what? He goes, look at this link. Look at this. And he'd be very critical of it. And I'd look at the number because we number all our bracelets. And it was zero, zero, two. And I said, well, Alex, if you have a problem with it, you're the one that made it. And what was happening is our shop would get better at it than him and refine certain things and tighten up the bracelet and maybe make a change in the connection. And then so the original ones were a little sloppy and he'd just laugh at himself that, so God, <laughs> busted. Really? <laughs> Yeah, because they, they they actually, you know, they do dozens of things. He does one or two. Oh, yeah. He does the original carving, but they put them together and refine it. It's, you know, not unlike, yeah. you know, sometimes chefs. I mean, their sous chefs are around them. Yeah. But so he he really taught himself then? Very much so, yeah. yeah. Amazing. But he, but he said, if, he says, life's not hard. If you can read, you can do anything. He says, I probably could fly a helicopter if you give me six months to read. Really? Mm. And, so, uh, and mm. the same way he went at cooking, he was a master chef. And when he gets something in his head like it was Indian for six months, and he really was good at it. And then he dropped it for something else and went on to Vietnamese French. And, you know, just a very interesting mind he had. And now, um, but do you think his upbringing or, or the fact that he... Uh, lived in the, you know, after the war and and on with all the politics there. And uh, do you think that had an influence on the way he he worked and and the way he created? Absolutely, because it, it, the only thing I can think of is the crucible. Everything that happened there, from his three aunts that were widowed due to persecution by the soviets that they doted all their attention on him like he was a prince to what he witnessed his parents going through what he witnessed neighbors telling on neighbors you know for advantage or to punish someone they're mad at you all you have to do is press a rumor and you can get someone's you know rights taken away from their heat their apartment you could make someone's life miserable with just a rumor in that time and then the scarcity of everything he i mean even around our office even the last 15 years, if we, he saw us wasting paper from the copy machine, he used to just get so bristle about it because he goes, you don't realize how many years I struggled to get good paper to draw on mm -hmm. and how rare a banana was at that time. A banana was showing off when I was in high school. You'd split it into 10 parts to share with your friends because we had no bananas and so on and so forth. And yeah, that crucible of upbringing. And then of course, 
the excesses of this country also horrified him. So it was a kind of a duality because, you know, as he got into his 60s, he was like a little let down by our country because, as you can see why, because there's, you know, a lot of ridiculousness on the news and the way people behave and, you know, especially add social media to it. He was horrified by all that. Um, and he was a very religious man. So it also didn't jive with, you know, his beliefs. Mm. But now, um, when he passed away, did uh, you decided to carry on with the business? Yeah, that that was never even a, it was never another thought because he and I had talked about that for years. And I used to press him. I go, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want done with your work? He says, when I die, I don't care if you make Legos out of it. I don't care if you make my jewelry in silver or plastic. And he used to say that in front of his wife because <laughs> I insisted. I'm like, I don't want a big fight about this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my staff was, there's 21 people here and they're horrified. And I sat them down and I said, you know, week after the funeral, I said, I want you all to not stress about this because if you walk up and down Fifth Avenue, you can see a lot of jewelers that are still open where the founders are dead, but they're still open because they maintained a quality and a standard. And, you know, there's plenty of work left to do that Alex started. There's plenty of uh, changes we can do. And there's plenty of, we got plenty of talent in our own shop that we could produce. You know, it might be a different collection, like the Natasha collection or something that she designs. Um, Candy's having a big influence in the beadwork she's doing on our necklaces. I'm doing my weird little pieces. You know, it's it's you know post Alex, but it's still affected by his qualities, his textures, his beliefs, his techniques. You know, it's it doesn't stop because of that. And uh, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah, and um. And still, uh, he's like you say, his influence is there. So, uh, of all the years of you and him working together, you know what uh, what he would have wanted or what how his designs developed. Yeah, yeah. And he was always full of surprises. He suddenly take a left hand turn and go a different direction. And it was nice nice to witness. So he's always up for a different challenge as long as it was within his standards mm -hmm. and um you know we're having fun with it because it's it's not brain surgery it's jewelry and it's supposed to be fun and whimsical and make give people joy mm -hmm. and so we're keeping it in that vein and you still uh, you say you also designing some some of the pieces now yeah so i have you... a few in there they're they're uh completely different and and when i go to a show and show them i call them jeffkus that's jeffkus he goes this doesn't look like alex's work oh, that's a jeffkus that's something i made <laughs> people laugh but you know the stuff sells so it's yeah fun. yeah and you still um but you're still selling as well so you're still doing the business part of things yeah and and we the last two years have been our biggest years in the company's history which is wow. kind of weird kind of weird and kind of morbid because i guess people feel like they're not going to get alex anymore so they're buying it faster but mm. hopefully that you know that's not the only reason mm. but yeah we, we jumped 30 percent last year after he died which was bizarre but, mm. but you know, of all the problems to have in the world that's not a bad problem to have yeah yeah no definitely but now jeff uh what is still for you the wish for the future for this company 
Uh, we're well. I'm 64. His wife is 70. Uh, we're um, grooming someone for it, and mm-hmm. uh, we think it'll work out fine. We just uh, have to, you know. I I think I have 10 years left in me. You know, I have no problem with that. But you do have to think about the future because I don't have children. Uh, his he doesn't have children involved in the company, and uh, you know, so we've got other plans to talk about. You know, these things go on, especially when you have something so strong as this this look and this brand. Yeah. And do you think there there are young designers who would be interested to study his work, you know, to, to study his type of design? Oh, sure, because hey, the funny part is, is there's just a, a wave of knockoffs of him. <laughs> really? They're great because it shows how difficult it is to do. When you see it, you you know it right away. It's like, you see, it's not so easy, is it? <laughs> mm. Because it stands out. And there actually was one one Russian guy that did some pieces that were like, and Alex was alive at that time. He said to me, we should hire this guy. <laughs> it's pretty good. I mean, the, he got it. He probably mm. was, we don't, we talked to him, but he, I don't ever remember his education, but I bet she was well-educated because it was mm. shocking how, what effort he made and um you know but there are people that are just signing up to do it especially lithuanians and next spring it's i'm going to do the first show ever in, in lithuanian in vilnius really? we have a gallery there and she's she's really blowing it up i mean she's going to have press i have to do tv spots i have to you know be there for four or five days it's going to be you know because he's like the prodigal son and i know that because i'm friends with the uh uh, what is he, the diplomat from the UN from Lithuania? Well, he brought the president of Lithuania up here, and and mm-hmm. another guy I don't know anything about, but they just went on and on about how proud they are of Alex and how made, proud they are to be Lithuanian that he has made came here with nothing in his pocket, made such a stamp in the the art world of jewelry, and they were they wanted to recognize it. So the gallery owner told me to be prepared for the likes of attention I'm not used to when I get over there because the the, the press will be all over and I want lots of coverage and so kind of getting geared up for, for yeah. April 15th. But I I mean looking at his work also it it I mean these are clearly works of art. I mean it's it's so unusual and so beautiful that he needs to be recognized for it. Yeah, it's so thoughtful. You never saw anyone put so much thought into it. And when you see his rejects, mm-hmm. there's not one of his rejects that I don't think we could sell, but he rejected them for very personal reasons. There was something just not right or balanced. Or, and in some cases, someone beat him to it. Like one guy was doing these lifesaver-shaped circles. Mm-hmm. As soon as he saw that, he scrapped his plan, and he, he had a love of keys. He collected keys from all over the world, from all centuries. And he came up with this line of keys. And then Tiffany's comes out and launches the key thing about five years ago. And he's like, that's it. I'm like, oh, please, Alex, your keys are so much better. And he goes, but it'll look like I'm copying them. So the keys keys are parked on the side right now. Oh, okay. (laughs) Maybe you can can revisit them sometime in the future. Sometime. Yeah. A good example of Alex at a trade show is you'd come there and you'd ask him about his work and he'd say, oh, well, there it is. I spoke already. It's in the pieces. Just look at the pieces. 
And then you ask him, what's exciting? He would take you by the hand and drag you over to see Michael Zobel or Stephen Webster or Renouche. He'd say, now this is exciting. And he could talk for hours about other people's work, but he could not speak about his own work. Really? He said, I've already spoken. I can't. I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to add. Very mm -hmm. shy in that funny way. Tell you asked him about someone else's work. Amazing. Well, I mean, he, he was a true artist, really. I love his work. I love his jewelry. Um, you would have loved him. This dark, really dry humor you would have loved. Yeah. He, had, he had a wicked sense of humor. Well, um, Jeff, it was so great to talk to you. And um, I, I really uh, wish that that this company could carry on doing this great work and beautiful work and that these work uh, would be recognized really as the artwork that it is. Well, as the guy at Christie's said, Alex, in 70 years, people will be fighting over your work. And he goes, well, it does me a lot of good. I'll be dead. And But it, but it was funny because it's probably true. You know, long after he's yeah. gone, it'll be like celebrated and fought over. But yeah. um, let's see. Uh, well, if you get to New York, please visit. You got to see oh, this. Yes. You got to see people that do this. You got to see how we're set up. I would love that. Center. Yeah, I would love that because, um, yeah, that would be great to see. And because it's, you know, jewelry, we see the jewelry, but we never think of the people behind the the jewelry who makes it and, and the design that goes into that. So uh, this is also why I wanted to talk to you about this. Well, I'll tell you, we have like a good example is that we have a customer from San Antonio, Texas for 15 years. And they don't really travel to New York much, but they said they were coming through. And I said, you know, tell your customer to come and stop. We'll buy them lunch and we'll give them a tour. Well, they thought they were going to walk into a retail store and see a bunch of showcases. Instead, they come into a showroom, take them into the shop, show each process. And they were so dumbfounded because they said what we imagined and what we really saw were completely two different things mm. because everything's there's so much handwork. They're looking for machines and computers that are making it. It's just handwork mm -hmm. and hand engravers and, <clears throat> and people that have been here 28 years, 30 years. <clears throat> and they were just stunned by it because they didn't think anyone still did it like that. And uh, they said, we have much more appreciation for it now that we saw that because uh, what, what people imagine and what the reality is are two different things. That's why we, we really emphasize tours all the time. We have 135 accounts around the world. We say, send your people. So I'm giving tours probably twice a week. Really? Yeah, but that's yeah. great because I think only when you see it you, um, and, and understand what's the process, then you really understand the value of of what you're buying or what you're getting. Yeah, the appreciation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I no different than if I, if I visited a Seville Road tailor and he showed me how he's building my suit, I'd be like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, big, okay. big different thing. Yeah. Well, Jeff, have a lovely afternoon or evening. You're almost in your yeah, late almost afternoon. Almost, 3 o'clock, 3 o'clock. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. And um, yeah, let, please let me know when it's up because I'd love to see it. I'd love to share it with friends. Okay. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. And please let me know whenever you come to Vienna. It would be so great to meet you in person. Oh, I will definitely let you know because that's on my bucket list. I've been all over Europe, but I've not been to Vienna yet. Really? Oh, no, you definitely have to come. I would love it. Thank you. Okay. Okay, Jeff. Right, see you. Cheers. See you. Bye.